Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Today's guest is Seth Friedman, uh, who's with me now, uh, author of The Pilgrim. And we're talking a little bit about that book and his art uh, continuing from then. Um, so why don't we start off with talking a little bit about where you're from and where you're born and where you grew up. Yeah, totally. It's good to be here. It's good to be here. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually uh, originally from New York. So I was born on Long Island and uh, raised uh, in Long Island, Nassau County, about 40 minutes east of Manhattan. Um, so uh, we ended up going to school in Virginia, but then kind of came back here for a little while, kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life after college. And, uh, you know, it was an interesting time. It was around 99, and a lot of things were changing, especially for the industry that I'd kind of studied for, which was like, uh, you know, somewhere between graphic design, communications. Um, yeah, so that, that was right around the time that the Internet kind of really broke. Yeah. And it was like I was uh, I was trained when I went to college in like 94 to be, you know, more of a traditional uh, fine artist slash somebody who's interested in communications, uh, TV, film, writing, all that good stuff. And they, they kind of tossed the whole major out halfway through. Yeah. They're like, yeah, this thing, the Internet, we think it's going to be really big. So you guys <laughs> should start learning design for it. Um, so, you know, I, when I graduated in 99, I wasn't really sure what to get into because the web wasn't really anything yet that was really it wasn't quite a design friendly medium just yet and at the same time i never really wanted to be like a traditional graphic designer um so you know that's when i decided to move out to san francisco uh right when the dot-com boom was happening and uh i got out there and uh you know i was i was kind of riding that way for a little while and then i got to see it crash mm-hmm. uh and then i got to see it crash like three more times yeah. uh and then it, it finally stabilized into what's kind of the modern tech industry now and uh, I, I, you know, had some, I've, I've kind of kept that vein going as my day job. Yeah. Uh, but it's also been kind of a fascinating industry to be a part of. Well, so I understand before, even before that juncture, like growing up, your parents were artists and engendering you a sense of, uh, the artistic. Can you talk a little bit about that and how growing up on Long Island with the artistic, uh, impulse in your family? Yeah. So I'm a third generation artist. Uh, my grandmother and my mother were both artists. Um, and, uh, both professional and fine artist. So my grandmother was, uh, I, I forget exactly what it was. She was some sort of fashion illustrator when she was younger, uh-huh. which, I, I mean, from what I can tell, was something, there weren't a lot of women in the workplace at that point. I mean, we're probably talking about, like, I don't know, the, the 20s or 30s, maybe? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact years, but, mm. you know, um, whatever it was, I think it was somewhat unique. Uh, and she was also a <clears throat> brilliant kind of fine artist. Um this painting behind me, it's a painting of sort of a, a boat and kind of a, a dock scene. That's one of hers. And yeah. she would sort of copy Rembrandt's, which is oh. just crazy. You know, yeah. that's really intense. She'd have them going for like months at a time. Literally uh, like like a, you know, perfect copy of a Rembrandt painting. Yeah. She was also a sculptor. My mom was kind of more like the artist who the teacher told like, ah, you're not so great at this. But huh. she... she loved it and she wanted to keep doing it so she uh she sort of started a business doing hand-painted gifts mm. in the 80s and so at that point she's putting sesame street characters and supermans onto little you know little loose site boxes for kids and stuff uh and then she eventually went back to school for uh, interior design she became an interior designer but look i mean so they're, they're very creative people they shoved a pencil into my hand at age yeah. five i didn't really have a choice 
And, you know, I loved it. I, I, was, I took to it very quickly. I loved to just, uh, you know, create my own little worlds and, and uh, stories and really inspired by Star Wars. I can't, like, literally was, like, born the year before it came out. Yeah. So, you know, that pretty much blew the minds of every little boy <laughs> of that age around that time. And it was, like, really inspirational. So, you know, there's, there's people like me sitting in my basement drawing all the characters and the different you know, permutations of the stories that happened outside the movies. And, you know, that I think really sparked a love of not only sort of art and drawing and creating, but also pop culture. Yeah. And, you know, the obvious sort of like proto-geek stuff that was going on back then. Yeah, and then ultimately your journey brought you to writing The Pilgrim. Um, how did that, what was the connecting force between uh, the time when you came out of college and you were doing graphic design and decided to go into writing? Yeah, so like I said, like the... The situation with with my uh, sort of education was like, you know, I really wanted to get into film and, and, you know, writing stories and producing, directing stories, you know, video, all that good stuff. Um, and the way things shifted around, it was almost like I felt like the rug got pulled out from under me for, mm. for that. And then I realized, I mean, it was actually like after 9-11. Yeah. You know, like out in California, um, you know, being from here but being separated from it and you know, really experiencing that sense of like, oh, all right, like I need to get on with what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. Um, and that's when I was sort of like, okay, can't really wait around for somebody else to, you know, help me start a film career or whatever. You know, I got to like, I got to DIY it. I got to figure out how to start just making stuff. I've been creating stuff my whole life. And I realized that it wasn't really my place to start like going out, like holding a camera and like filming a bunch of stuff. Mm. Whereas... You know, some people kind of get into it that way. I wanted to create stories. So yeah. really, that's about writing. And look, you can write and create your own, you know, movies, quote unquote, without having to like spend a bunch of money and like film anything. I mean, you create it. So that's that was what was attractive to me that, you know, as somebody who liked to essentially sit in their basement and create their own little stories as a kid, you know, as an adult, I could essentially do the same thing and, and create the kind of stories I wanted to tell. So I kind of dove headfirst into screenwriting, which is a combination of like, learning the techniques and understanding how to really do it right with really uh, figuring out how to write the movie I wanted to write. Mm. And they, I've heard them talk about the your first screenplay is, is your quote-unquote like dead grandmother screenplay. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that, you've ever heard that term. I'm no, not sure no, if what that's... What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the way I've heard it expressed is like every story, everybody has that first story that they've been like sort of waiting their whole lives to tell, which mm. is really like their story in a way mm -hmm. not necessarily their biographical story but the story in their soul that they've been waiting to tell yeah and you know they call it dead grandma who's like you know when i was six i at my grandmother's funeral my uncle took me aside and we had this conversation he told me the meaning of life and like yeah. from there blah 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 i don't know it's something like that it's, it's almost like, like the i seem to interpret that as almost like uh, growing up, you that your parents told you some puzzle, some problem they had that you want to solve. It's almost like the idea that you're, um, you know, in Star Wars they express it in kind of when say I'm going to finish what you started, and yeah. you know our sons are taking on the the projects of their fathers or totally. great grandfathers in that case of uh, completing work that they feel was incomplete in their childhood. You know? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting yeah. what that story you're waiting to tell is. Yeah, so I don't know exactly where that term came from, but it's like, all right, yeah. your first story is kind of that, and your first story is a pretty crappy story. Yeah, it's like you're you gotta like get that first thing out. It's, I mean, at least mine, preachy, yeah. pretentious, you know, like oh, so overwrought. But it's like yeah. it has to be. You have to like put that kind of energy into like, oh, all right, this is gonna be awesome. I'm gonna become a writer. I'm gonna learn how to do this. 
And, you know, after that, you start, like, reeling it back a little bit. Be like, all right, you know, the next one I'm going to write, I'm going to be a little bit more uh, judicious, yeah. you know, uh, you know, not just sort of, like, go for it as much, maybe. Maybe kind of hold back a little bit, which yeah. is important sometimes when creating. But also, it just seems like uh, the thesis of uh, recently I've been exposed to Chris Gethard talks about failing well. You oh, know, so yeah. just in order to create work or be creative, we just have to go out there and fail, you know, and, and be brave about it. Not, you know, a lot of people are held back by the the aesthetic judgments they make on their first work and understanding that, uh, you know, the first work is going to be crap. The first draft is going to be crap, you know? So, like, so. Yeah, this is like actually a really key sort of mm-hmm. issue in what I believe is like learning how to be more creative or better at it or more uh, prolific. And so, you know, and I've sort of taught uh, creative problem solving and how to be more creative in different, you know, different jobs I've had and things like that. I've, I've kind of took it on myself to try and like help people learn a bit more about how to do e- how to do what it comes a little bit more easily to me. Mm. Um, and the thing is, a lot of people who aren't, you know, who aren't artistic or creative normally and you know there's a lot of that well i don't know how to do it but like everybody if you practice enough anybody is good enough at it but like the thing is like the thing most people are most afraid of doing is making that first mark and making a mistake yeah when the fundamental thing you have to do is make that first mark and make a mistake yeah and erase it and draw it a little cleaner and erase it again and add a little style to it i mean the very notion of like creating a sketch and then building on it which is something that as a artistic kid and a kid raised by artists like came naturally to me at an early age. Mm. That idea is so portable to so many things in life, I think. Yeah. Like everything from how you approach a situation where, like a job interview or something where it's like, you know, you go for the first one after you haven't done that in a while. It's a sketch. It's you're going to mess it up. You're going to learn from your mistakes, make the next one better. Mm. Uh, Whether it's painting, drawing, writing, anything more traditionally, you know, creative arts. You always start with a kind of like, well, I don't know how this is going to go, but let's, all right, here, let's try this. Well, oh, all right. Well, that piece is okay, but then most of this I will race. But oh, I see something here. Yeah. So the, I, I think I, like that idea of like, don't be afraid to like make a mistake, make it happen, but get something on the paper yeah. is like the one of the most fundamental lessons of like being more creative. Yeah, I think for people who may not have grown up, I think for you, maybe you're saying that with artistic parents knowing or artistic family knowing that you're exposed to the creative process and it's uh, failed and it's kind of the, the complicated or tangled journey of the artistic process. Many people, other people, somewhat my close, myself included, will see products mm-hmm. and think, oh, that's really great or I can never achieve that standard, mm-hmm. but not be aware. Uh, you know, something later in life, I became more of the artistic process, you know, as I started to get into writing classes and all this kind of thing, that people are exposed to the artistic process and the mess that's created in the artistic process as opposed to a perfect product, you know? Yeah, totally. And uh, I, I think the very notion that you got to create something that you got to be able to hang up or be proud of is, is what messes with people. Yeah. Because obviously, if you're like starting out in any art form, you know, you just you're probably not going to have something that looks like really that good. I mean, so objectively, like that good mm. for a little while. Yeah. But like one of the best teachers I've had, and I think I think we talked about this. We were we were sort of chatting once about this. Like one of my best teachers, this guy Michael Markowitz. He still does sketch classes in San Francisco, and he was one of the first guys who first of all helped me understand. Like, look, you're never going to stop going to these classes. This mm. isn't about getting to a point where you're like, oh, I'm good. This is like you're going to be like 88 whatever, and still taking these classes being like, you know, I can do a little bit better. But one of my favorite things that that guy did was sort of like two things. Like, first of all, he had us do 
drawing where we could not we were doing sketches but we could not look at the drawing yeah so we'd have a model and we'd be looking at the model and we were not allowed to look down wow and it really taught you to learn how to almost like feel with your eyes Mm. and not worry about the eye to the paper um the other thing he would have us do is have us do drawings and throw them away as soon as we're done Mm. which is like so liberating yeah (laughs) it's like you just like it doesn't matter you're not waiting for that point of like i'm gonna look at it i'm gonna judge it is it subjectively good bad whatever all the Mm. things triggering me in my mind you know you literally just have an experience of expressing yourself and then you do not worry about the product yeah. and that stuff those things stuck with me more than anything yeah. and really pushed me to be like okay like i gotta learn how to be how to how to have a better experience creating which will translate to the product rather than trying to make a better product yeah so just to jump off what you're saying in that example the illustration you know there's a great thought western thought experiments but also in the east they do this but they're like they think about uh, picasso writing in the sand and this great perfect Illustration: The water comes and washes it away. Or in this, in the Eastern traditions, the mandala is something that they spend hours and days and you know meticulously creating intricate designs, and then they just wipe it away. And uh, the thoughts on you know that the product doesn't have to quote unquote last, or you know have to you know the idea in the in the West we have of the Indiana Jones impulse. This belongs in a museum, or right. you know this belongs somewhere hallowed that people can look at. But rather, products are produced, and what is the you know, in that example of something washed away, what is really the value? But the value is really in producing it, or what yeah. would you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the process. That, yeah. yeah, that makes me think. So um, so my wife, uh, really, she's an artist as well, and she really loves creating mandalas. Mm. And she went and took, a, recently she went on sort of a retreat and was doing some courses in, in Bali. And she showed me these pictures when she got back of every morning. I mean, she was at a retreat resort, so you know, obviously they were doing this stuff for the benefit of the people staying there. But every morning, uh, some of the people who ran the place would create mandalas on the ground made of flowers. Mm. You know, like beautiful sort of, uh, you know, just out for like the ladies who were on this retreat to kind of wake up, come out and see, have their breakfast. You know, they weren't saving those. Yeah. You know, it was just, it was like they were putting them together and it was just awesome. And But yeah, I mean, um, so even as I say this, I will admit one of my favorite things to do as a creative is to make something and then come back later and look at it and be like, damn, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's less of like, oh, I'm so awesome, than it is like, I'm really happy that I was able to achieve that vision that was in my mind's eye that like could have been nothing. Yeah. And so admittedly, I get a charge out of that. Like that's probably part of why I create on some level is the feeling of looking at it later and being like, nice. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think there is a value to both processes, like creating something and then letting it go and letting the imprint last with you and also preserving things because, you know, we want to share for others or maybe even for our future self, have a a look back on what we learned from our past self or something or what, you know, keeping a record of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that said, though, like, okay, so the flip side of that is like, once you go down the rabbit hole of being like, Okay, what what is good? Yeah. Or what is objectively like you know, this is better than that. Yeah. Once you go down the rabbit hole of unraveling that, I think you begin to realize like it is it's so subjective. Yeah. Um I'm not trying to say that we should just not like it's it's clear that some work is 
better than other work, but it mm. really is like by by whose standards? Yeah. Um, you know, I have friends in the fine art world who I would, you know, I, I'm not sure what the diplomatic word is, but I'll say they're they're a little snobby, right? In their yeah. case, and I can appreciate that. I can appreciate having like appreciating good stuff enough to be like differentiating it from lesser quality stuff. Mm. But, you know, we would go to galleries together in New York City and, like, you know, kind of like the gallery tours in Chelsea. And I always try and find something in everything that I can appreciate or or the uniqueness of that artist's unique vision. Yeah. You know, I know that there's stuff I don't like always, yeah. but I like to differentiate between what I like and good or bad. Mm. Like, you know, looking at something and being like, well, that's not very good yeah. is very different from being like, nah, I don't really like that that much. Yeah, you know, because it's, it's like, like the judging mind. Yeah, in the Zen tradition, they talk about the beginner's mind versus the judging mind, mm-hmm. and it seems like that's what you're kind of hitting on. Because it seems like when you're judging mind, there's less and less things that you'll you know becoming a very narrow um, appreciation, and less and less things uh, are able to bring you to the place that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I I definitely have a practice of sorts, and I've mm. been very interested in a lot of. Eastern philosophy, I guess we'll call it, you know, Buddhist thought, you know, Taoism, things like this that at a young age really fascinated me um, and things that I've studied and have really benefited my life. Mm. Like philosophies that have helped me to understand my world, to live my truth. But, um, you know, I will say that at the core of it is a sense of like the less judgment one can bring in, the more they can be in the moment, the more like the better they're the better their life is going to be, the better stuff the stuff they make is going to be. So you know, trying not to judge things I see, also try not to judge myself and my own stuff. You know, oh, this is terrible. That doesn't mm. happen as much. I may be like, oh, I'm not quite getting it where I want it to be. Yeah. But there's less of the, the the weird judgy. I mean, who is that voice anyway? Is it your teacher who rejected you? Is it your mom or dad who didn't? You know, whatever. You know, is it the you know or you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like who is that voice judging your stuff? Like getting that stuff out of there. And boiling that off to where one can sit down and, and be very present and not be creating from a place of like, I want it to look good. I want it to be judged well. I want to be judged well. Mm-hmm. And maybe just kind of doing what you want to do and what's fun, that's the, that's the place to get to. Yeah. You know, it took a while. Yeah. <laughs> I got to admit, yeah. you know, but like any good practice probably should take a while to crack through some of that stuff. Yeah. And that's what you're doing it for, to kind of crack through those outer layers to get to the good stuff. To where now, I mean, again, my wife is also an artist. She's about like five or six years younger than me. But we're at this age. She's in her mid-30s. I'm in my early 40s. Where we're finally, you know, all the all that stuff is finally like kind of flaked, it off, flaked off. Mm. And majority of the time we go to create now, it's the good stuff. Yeah. You know, the block, like writer's block or artist block, that doesn't really exist. Yeah. We have our good days and our bad. And sometimes it's on, sometimes it's off the chemicals in your body, whatever's going on that day. But the, I don't have problems where I, I'm not sure what to do or I'm staring at the blank page. Like, more often than not, coming back to that sketch idea, I'll just kind of do the equivalent of blurting something out, either yeah. with writing or drawing. And then it's there. And now there's clay to work with. Mm. And so the the idea of being blocked doesn't happen too often. I mean, sometimes yeah. you're just not feeling it. Yeah, I mean, just to return to the what we were talking about originally about the... Um the grandfather's vision or the, I know you had like a thing of the old grandfather's uh, legacy. Um, so do you think that artists, each artist has like a, 
something essential they're working on. Some people criticize artists saying all their work sounds like. Many people criticize many artists saying it's that formula or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what is your commentary on like formulas and one thing we're trying to wrestle with, the artist trying to wrestle with um, that returns in their work, that one unexpressible they're trying to express maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So like to some degree, I think what we're talking about is intention. Yeah. So if it's my intention to create work and explore and try and get closer to, um, you know, something kind of essential in me that is trying to come through in my work, like I'm not so worried about like, am I duplicating or am I, you know, I, I feel like I've become a lot more, both aware and sort of attuned to knowing when I'm out of the flow. Yeah. Knowing when I'm sort of spinning the wheels or, you know, pulling up the old greatest hits. And, you know, I've worked to uh, get to a place where um, I'm more, I'm more aware quicker of that. Yeah. And so you can kind of be like, oh, I've just dropped down into this old pattern of I'm trying to trace this to make it look perfect because yeah. if it looks awesome, they're going to think I'm awesome and I'm yeah. going to get all the toys and, you know, all the gold, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, whereas now it's like, okay, like, you know, like, i uh, just kind of doing what I, what feels good right now, but it's like, okay, like if you're a commercial band and you're judged on essentially like the album as a construct and you put out your new album and people are just like, oh, it really sounds like you know, they've, they've fallen into routine. I mean, they may have been totally making their purest, you know, coming from their soul, totally attempting to be, you know, as, as, as much of where they are in that moment and reflect that. But like, you know, there is a relationship that exists there between creator and critic or creator and observer. Yeah. And like there, you're always going to have people who will, who will be outside of you and say, you know, I love that last work he or she did. But the new work, it seems kind of derivative, or it seems like they've fallen into a pattern or something. The artist may not feel that way. The artist may be like, this is what I do. So, I mean, some of that, I think, is dictated by, you know, the ongoing relationship there. And so if your goal is to be commercially successful, I think, you know, one has to be in playing other games besides just creating pure, great, awesome stuff from from their heart. Like, you're starting to play a little bit more... You know, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not condescending to it at yeah. all. Like what I'm saying is, like, it's a different game. It's like, okay, like I want to play with my audience. I want to surprise them. I want to give them mm. something fresh, or I want to show them a different side of me. And some of the greatest artists, and I'm come back to music, you know, consistently play with that idea of, you know, um, like almost like like Bowie. You know, like like I'm gonna be a little something different. They're expecting this. They're expecting A, I'm going to give them B. Yeah. Or I know that people these days believe that A is reality, so I'm going to be a B type person or whatever. Yeah. You know, there's something interesting there. And that's, that's I think that's a different thing of because course, you're, yeah. you're, it's more, you're, you're driving it from a place of like, I want to, you know, you're playing with the, it's like a give and take at that point, yeah. which I, I like that stuff. I like to think of my audience when I'm creating. Yeah. I, I think like it's to, important. Yeah. I like to make people happy. I like to, make fun stuff that people enjoy mm. that's not necessarily what art should be yeah. i mean like but like that's what my art is i guess yeah yeah so let's return to uh the pilgrim yeah and uh how the evolution of how it became a work that uh historical fiction work that ultimately was uh picked up by a school the curriculum as part of their curriculum so we can talk a little bit about that process and and product 
yeah, yeah. so uh, so I, I was talking earlier about how I sort of got into the writing thing by starting some screenplays and kind of taught myself how to write screenplays. I wrote three over the course of uh, probably half a decade and you know the first one took longer than the second one which uh, you know the third one went faster than that one mm. and so I finished three essentially three movies my plan at that point was to write like ten screenplays and I figured by the time I'd written ten I would be good enough to like start you know pimping them in Hollywood or yeah. whatever one does um, and so I wrote three and then I kind of got an idea to write one that was uh, write a television screen a television series, mm. essentially like a like a spec script for a series, like so maybe thirteen episodes, maybe a bible. Mm. Um, I, I was inspired by this uh, HBO um, historical fiction show called Rome, which sort of wedded that HBO aesthetic of you know at the time Sopranos and uh, you know there are a couple other shows which were really like kind of at the forefront of what what I'll now call a television renaissance. Yeah. Being and edgy or being kind of the uh, HBO formula being kind of like pushing the envelope or... There's a little of that. Yeah, little but also that, just yeah. like telling better stories. Yeah. And using the medium of television for more what I'll call like almost like independent film sensibilities mm. and, you know, just, just being able to tell great stories and being yeah. able to... to to uh, use a, a bigger palette. Okay, yeah, epic, you know? epic palette. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, so I was like really inspired that. by this one show, and yeah. it, I'd always been sort of a, a history buff, and I, I at the time I was really ensconced in like a, like a, a revitalization of my history knowledge. Mm. So I went back and read from the beginning, which is to say, I read everything I could on prehistory, and then early civilizations, and then. Um, you know, kind of uh, the, the Greeks and that, that period of time and the, the early Jews and then moving up toward the Roman period, right? And, mm. and I was on the cusp of kind of doing my learning on the medieval period. So I got this idea to kind of do this, this TV series, which was essentially a, you know, uh, the version of medieval times, but done in that HBO style. And now they have something like that. I think it's called Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. isn't to say that I thought of it before them because yeah. he was writing way before. But, like, you know, that vibe was something I, was, I, I feel like I was on or connected to, what, something that was about to break a bit, which is like, oh, this really fascinating uh, point in history, medieval times or sort of the Middle Ages, you know, the, the, the post-Dark Ages, pre-Renaissance, like that kind of feudal era with knights mm. and castles and... We have we have all this collective mythology in Western culture that comes out of that period. Mm. So I felt it was so fertile for like playing around with. Um, and you know, when I say like Game of Thrones is essentially that. I mean, like, sure, it's it's fiction, but the the whole world of Game of Thrones is essentially like a combo of like two thirds of the medieval world with like a little bit of what came after that. Yeah. So anyway, I had this idea, and I was like, all right, I'm going to write this television series. It's going to be about kind of the the you know archetypal knight character, and really kind of like what is the story behind that archetype? Yeah. You know, the knight on the horse fighting the dragon. Where does that come from? Yeah. Right. So I I, I started digging in, started doing my reading, started creating a sort of a bible. And I had some characters, and I had some bits of story ideas, and, you know, it was coming together. I spent about a year uh, spending my weekends in the San Francisco Public Library, which is just, I know, I mean, I know you appreciate Excellent. a good library. Yeah. It's just a gorgeous library. It is like an atrium that is flooded with natural light, lots of white space, just a great spot. 
Hmm. It's also like kind of in one of the kind of dingier parts of San Francisco, which is to say that like a lot of San Francisco's sort of lower class, uh, not lower class. I mean, I mean, I mean like homeless people, disenfranchised people. Can it's right near where most of them are, so it's like mm. a place where somebody who doesn't have much can congregate and you know read a book, watch a video, take out a book. Um, so you know, it, I, I always just thought it was one of those places where it had like a confluence of good energy. So I kind of basically like went through their medieval library and just like read what I could, absorbed it all, and you know, it's like it's like you do that, you spend a year worth of weekends reading all this stuff about that period. And it gels. Things happen, you know. Little bits start to stick to other little bits. Mm. And you find these areas of, oh, wow, like, like oh, I see where that comes from and, where, what, you know, what flowed, what ideas flowed in to, to create this thing that we view through the lens of history hundreds of years later to be like, whoa, like, so like this was just people living their lives, but, like, we kind of, we, we like, immortalize it now in the way we think about it. Anyway... At, at the time I was done with by the time I was done with all that research, I was like, "This is a novel. This is yeah. not a television series. This is not screenplays. Screenplays are very spare. It's dialogue. It's action. It's meant to be interpreted by directors, actors, costume designers, everybody else. But a novel can talk about thoughts and feelings, and you know, kind of really be. Um, it can be. It can be dense. It can be. Yeah. You know. So um, I'd never written a book before. Didn't know anything about writing novels. So I started. <laughs> it yeah. took me a while. As we were saying, the important first step is just to, you know, punch in there and just do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And my process is like I usually like to plan out kind of the skeleton so I have room to then kind of play around. Hmm. So I know that like this follows that, which allows me to not have to like think about the – I mean this is not my idea. Yeah, writing a good course, outline yeah. is smart writing. But yeah. I know p- people have different processes. You know, some people like to just kind of dive in. Uh, kind of splatter it around and then go back. I mean, my thing is kind of like plan it, leave just enough room to then play around and 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 see where it goes. Yeah. And the interesting thing that happened then was the story I'd planned to write actually became the prequel to that story oh, yeah. because the main character had to have a father, and I'm like, what happened to that father? And then the time periods I'd set up to work within, it was like the the perfect opportunity to write about the, the Third Crusade, which I thought was the more interesting one. Mm. One of the more interesting ones. Mm. Um, and so my story started to dovetail with that time period. And this is also the early 2000s. So the Iraq war and that whole situation is unfolding. And so we're all thinking a lot about in the Western world the, the Crusades and the, what it means for a kind of Western Christianized nation, if you will, to kind of go into the Muslim world and, and be, you know, all up in that involved and the cross-pollination that happens from that. Um, yeah. and, and that's that idea... Which is which is based on the Crusades, or you know, that that formed a lot of the backbone of culture back then. Yeah, these dudes went off to war. These not, these guys went off to war in the Middle East. They had come from nothing. They were like you know farmhands or or landowners in in the Western world, looking for riches, looking for a new life, looking for salvation. Mm. And they went there, and it changed them. Mm. If they survived, if they came back, you know, they brought back a bit of that with them. And that cross-pollination of cultures is, you know, an amazing thing that, you know, we think about the Crusades as justifiably terrible, yeah. you know, it's like there, there aren't enough, uh, uh, you know, fingers to point at how many bad people there were. And certainly the West was, you know, to blame for starting it. Mm. But I mean, look, everybody was kind of bad back then. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people did a lot of terrible things. 
But the idea that it was more than that, that, okay, these things come from, they start from a bad spot, but like inevitably they lead to a major change in the world mm. across pollination culture. And I think also like uh, one aspect of this journey might be that we're looking at historical accounts and historical um, records and uh, stories to with with a um, through the lens of where we are now to find answers perhaps for our current situation where it came from what we what insights can we bring from the past to our contemporary landscape you know we think about history as being uh, you know a repeating pattern mm -hmm. and how we can learn from what came before us what what happened before us in order to find avenues or pathways and in problems that are repeating, you know, mm -hmm. and what would you say, um, you know, you explore a little bit of that kind of the repeating patterns and, and some of the things that we can gain insights from, from the Crusades, but any other uh, comments on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I did my best to keep any sort of um, specific geopolitical commentary yeah. pretty diffuse. Yeah. Like I wanted to go more archetypal, more, um, okay, let's say, what are the things that connect human beings yeah. in terms of, you know, everybody gets angry, emotional, everybody has joy and reasons to strive for things. Like, these things that connect every person. Mm. My goal is to say, okay, like, yeah, like, it's, it's like this sort of pattern is happening again, but the essence of it are people who are flawed. Yeah, you know, and like this idea of like the more we can shine a light on what are the small flaws that create the big flaws. I mean, I think that's how we solve the problems, right? Yeah. And as each person kind of does their best to put their better self forward each day, the world gets a little better. Yeah. Because you know, I mean, look, look, I'm not trying to be an idealist. I certainly am not a perfect human being, or or you know, quite far from it. But like you know, I think as we all try and live not just like better lives, but like truer lives. You know, trying to, um, you know, find the thing that's best for us that we really want. Not what, what we feel like we should have or what somebody told us to. Yeah. Or what one of the voices of our parents or whatever is telling us. Because we strive to find, like, what we really do want. I think we create better lives for ourselves, and that reverberates. Yeah. And so, like, finding that and, and really going to the fact that, like, okay, I want to tell this story. But I want to go to the fact that there are very emotional people on all sides who had some very valid reasons for doing what they did even though people in other places would interpret it differently mm. and to show that there's almost an equality on all sides with that yeah. and then to also um maybe well no I, mean, I, won't, I won't say that exactly but yeah i mean it's like that that idea like that that you know you can cut across all of it by saying that you know people are basically the same <laughs> everywhere and yeah. driven by the same you know ups and downs mm. um, so, I mean, that, that became more interesting to me and, you know, finding ways to, to also focus on how people transcend that stuff. Yeah. You know, the, and, the human drama and the essential repeating archetyp archetypical, um, pathways and, and cross-cultural, uh, arenas. Yeah. What drives, what drives us to do us? these yeah. things? You know, yeah. why did some guy say, you know, I'm going to lead the third crusade and go do this. Like. What was it really driving that? And mm. maybe if that person had been a little more honest with, you know, what that stuff was, yeah. maybe we could avoid a little bit of bloodshed, yeah. you know? So can you tease the plot a little bit of uh, The Pilgrim? Yeah. Um, so um, what's interesting to me, or at least was interesting to me about um, what I was doing with this book was playing with archetypes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've definitely 
digested my fair share of Joseph Campbell stuff, and I yeah. really, you know, as a young, naive writer, really loved playing with those things. And I mean, I also somebody who grew up on comics and Star Wars, and you know, these very archetypal sort of like male, very, very mm. male-oriented for sure, mm. but like uh, expressions of kind of like that experience. I I wanted to kind of play with that stuff, so I kind of created a character who I saw as the archetype of the medieval world. Mm. So his sort of birth and the circumstances before his birth and his life as he goes through this journey was meant to be uh, sort of a symbol for how that world changed. Yeah. And so the early story plays with how the character, you know, the character's from England because, we, you know, the, a lot of that Western mythology comes from England. And, you know, f- really digging into the, the Arthur, uh, you know, the Arthurian cycles and the, the, um, the you know, the, the different, uh, you know, stories of the different knights outside of that and, mm. and the Holy Grail stuff. I mean, once you start going down the Holy Grail, um, rabbit hole that that really provides a really interesting window to the to the mindset of people back then. Yeah, um, that's a symbol that's very powerful for those people. Um, and you know, so this main character is sort of a you know kind of an orphan who who drifts uh, in that world, and you know also embodies an outsider of sorts, and then comes into conflict with people around him that causes him to essentially have to go to the Holy Land on. Uh, crusade because the 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 reward for doing that was absolution for your sins yeah so it's it could be like imagine like somebody who was um you know uh in prison for something now you know like uh maybe not a violent criminal but you know the kind of person who was in prison but was offered like essentially if you join the army and go fight in afghanistan all of your uh crimes will be absolved yeah and so that's kind of this character you know he's committed some crimes and he knows that he has no choice but to essentially like hit the road and you know fight for absolution. And then that story dovetails with the story of Richard the Lionheart, who was um, the the King of England and the, the guy who drove the Third Crusade, uh, it, it directly in conflict with the leader of the Muslim world, who was uh, Saladin, who was one of the great leaders. And these two guys were. I mean, they committed atrocities. They did horrible things. But, like, they were, from what I can tell of studying their characters, better than the average horrible leader from back then. Yeah. They were not terrible people. They had, you know, they they were pragmatic people. They wanted to do what they felt was best for their people. Uh, They were not interested purely in personal enrichment. Uh, But Richard the Lionheart in particular was an interesting character to me mercurial uh emotional larger than life flawed very flawed Mm -hmm. and like driven by his flaws um and really uh going for something that was probably beyond him excuse me and uh in winning back jerusalem which had been sort of lost after the the western forces took it in the first crusade he 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 was an interesting character to write he was like the, the the character you could write. We could do whatever you wanted to because he was kind of out of his mind. But I mean, he was a he was at his heart probably doing what he thought was best. And so I mean, he did terrible things. I'm not trying to uh, apologize for that character, uh, but he was a fun character to write. And uh, to me, he was sort of um, uh, a complex character that that also allowed me to explore some stuff that I was going through at the time. Yeah, I think definitely connecting 
you know, our own personal journeys with these characters, these larger than life characters in history that have been gone through the mill of being either demonized or romanticized, depending on who you're looking at, what kind of text you're looking at. There's many ways in which historical figures have, you know, people, historians have kind of trumped up all their atrocities or maybe romanticized them to the point where we lose sight of what their mm -hmm. objective is. They're interesting to be able to form that personal connection with the with their own journey with these historical figures and, and use them as tools. As I'm getting from what you're saying, that using them as tools for uh, an archetypical journey that we're all, all human beings are on, but particularly we have skin in the game because our journey is part of that, or what, what we're personally fighting or, or looking at. Or, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and like, um, so it's less, of, for me, it was less, I mean, I'm writing historical fiction here. Mm. It was less about being accurate which mm. is there is I uh, the attempt was to be accurate in a bigger picture sense, but then to take the events and to find ways to parallel them to sort of the emotional highs and lows that anybody goes through. Yeah, and sort of like as one of these characters may be striving to you know win back a uh, crucial piece of uh, uh, you know land or whatever is, you know, akin to anybody striving for something that maybe is, is beyond their reach and how they mm. how they process that, why they're driven to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, that's what's fun about it. That's what, you know, in trying to write something that's timeless, mm. which was sort of a, a, an ambitious goal of mine, I mean, it, the, the sense is that anybody can read it at any time in any situation and find something in it. Yeah. Whether they love history or the medieval times or whether they think the main characters are terrible or good or whatever is to create that thing where it's like okay like this is like you know the christmas carol is not meant to just be about 18th century you know england yeah or sorry uh 19th century england? nice yeah, yeah nice, <laughs> the 1800s yeah, 1800s, yeah, 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 whatever, yeah. It, it's meant to be about like you know anybody who's like that or like this in any time and if you're lucky you create something that's like got so much like you know fun and uh, not just fun, like, you know, texture and uh, depth to it or whatever, whatever, you yeah, know, that, that it can, you know, stand the test. I think it also connects to our previous uh, kind of thread about, um, you know, the reader and the writer and the relationship the reader and writer has, you know, that we want to be able to uh, balance, um, you know, the universal and the specific. You know, in some previous conversations I had uh, with the writers, uh, they talked about how, uh, the one through line that they follow is, you know, uh, Maria Dessa in one of the previous interviews said that she gets highly specific into her circumstances and actually being truthful is the um, goal. So that then, you know, even though she's, uh, you know, African-American woman living in America, she's able to be very truthful to that. And, and then her readers who are in a very different uh, circumstances, maybe a white male, would be able to read that and find something valuable because it's, it's being wholly truthful to her and her truth, you know, I think that's also an interesting thing to think about. And what you're saying, I, when I gather what you're saying, is being able to say, you know, how we're hitting the universal through very specific uh, characters, very specific circumstances of the Third Crusade. And but you know, people don't have to be um, necessarily. We don't get bogged down in the uh, the specifics of the Third Crusade while being truthful to the circumstance of that world, would you say? How would you? Yeah, like yeah. It's, I didn't write a book for history wonks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know what I, mean? yeah. Yeah. I wrote a book for somebody, for people who love good stories, for exactly, people who yeah. like a little high adventure, yeah. for people who like a little history, yeah. but also to kind of like 
find the mechanics of how people throughout different points in time went through the same things. Yeah. Like, I'm not interested in... If you're... it. Look, I mean, if you're the kind of person that looks for how we're all different, yeah. I'm not really interested in that. Yeah. You know, I tend to believe we're basically like a group of monkeys living on planet Earth <laughs> who are slightly different based on the geology they grew up... Exactly. The geography exactly. they grew up around. Yeah, just a bunch of owl kingdom. Yeah. yeah. And now we're all mixed yeah. together and we're yeah. one world. Yeah. And we can talk to anybody anywhere, anytime. So it's yeah. it's more than ever we're one thing. Yeah. So I'm interested in more of the things that cross over. And so, you know, that's why I was... um hooked by Campbell mm. I mean he basically took all the world religions and, and stories and kind of like synced them up and said like okay we're not trying to erase our sort of cultural identities that make us unique mm. but it's so interesting how everybody has a flood story yeah it's so interesting how the archetypal heroes of all these stories basically follow a similar path yeah which is just another way of saying we're all kind of going through the same stuff yeah i also as a writer i do this a lot where you know the the in the pre another episode with um uh Sfie, i talked about like essentializing and how the formulas underlying the specific uh, are very helpful. So, like, you know, a lot of times with cultural or ritual, uh, we get bogged down in, you know, um, a lot of times we get bogged down in, you know, how it exhibits itself in specific circumstances, but understanding the formulas or the rationale reasons, impulses behind the creation of ritual, the creation of, you know, why do I do these uh, specific steps in a mass or specific steps in a, in a puja or in any kind of thing, mm -hmm. and understanding the function of them, that enable, enables us or empowers us to be able to, um, you know, uh, understand the, the mindset of the mind, the mind's headspace that produced that mm. and how we connect with that power source. I don't know, you know. So if you understand what I'm saying, you know, like the power source of, you know, uh, our human, um, it's almost something empowering about what you're talking about, about, you know, these formulas of reaching that, uh, our humanity, you know, what is our humanity? Yeah, even the bad things we do, yeah. like... Like I'm really fascinated these days, and not not just these days, but but the idea of othering. Yeah. Right. And obviously, yeah. we're in a moment where yeah, right. there's a fine point put on like the fact that that's very relevant to you know this moment. Where I mean, obviously, U.S. government stuff, but like I think it's happening all over the world. Yeah. I think it's 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 part of who we are. Yeah. To kind of go like that tribe over there ain't us. Yeah. We gotta, you know, watch, watch them. Yeah. And, but like othering is such an interesting thing because it's like, I mean, I think everybody does it. I mean, you do it when you get, when you like are on the street and you're like, Hey, screw you guy. You're yeah. trying to mess with my thing or somebody like, you know, does something to you thinking, you know, we're, Oh, they're part of that team yeah. who would do something like that. They're not just another human who's trying to do their thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying excuse and be walked all over, but like, you know, othering isn't just about saying the people on the other side of our borders are different from us, or even the people whose skin color in this country is different are different from us. Othering is something we all do all the time to each other, mm. and it's it's just an interesting thing we do as humans that yeah. we should do less of, but, like, it, it comes from very personal places. So it's like people are either – sometimes people are taught it and indoctrinated. You know, mm. sometimes people have very specific experiences as young human beings that, like, colors how they will deal with other people throughout their whole life. And they'll always feel a little isolated. So, like, I think, like, that idea and how, like, you know, you know how, do our, how do the rituals that you define 
or have that, that you absorb define you so much that they f- have to feel so different from someone else's yeah when really it's mostly the same stuff yeah I, definitely yeah, i like definitely that. agree and i think there is a pattern of focusing or over focusing on how uh people are cultures and, and people and traditions are different as you as we've been saying but um understanding how those uh uh, manifestations of differences are actually connected to uh, the same basic archetypes that the, the the centers of truth and power that all cultures, all humanities are derived from the Joseph Campbell formula, the Joseph Campbell uh, expression of the hero's journey. They're all on that journey. It seems to be coming out clearly to me in that, uh, you know, we're all kind of connected to these uh, uh, major stages or, uh, or maybe uh, thresholds that are, you know, in some ways expresses uh, the chakras or whatever, whatever, however yeah, you want to yeah, manifest yeah. that right. uh, symbols um, that uh, empower us to push forward through this world and, um, you know, enable us to reach. Uh, is there a goal? Is there something? Is there some completion point you think? Or I don't know. Is there? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think death. that is? <laughs> yeah. Death, yeah. <laughs> That's the completion yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no getting away from it yeah. yet. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like I, one thing I do think about the hero's journey that needs to be said is that it is based on a very traditional patriarchal bent to mm. all societies. Yeah. And that there needs to be a, uh, a consideration of not just, how there may be a separate version of a more um, female sort of version of the hero's journey mm. that has been accounted for yeah. in the revered Campbell hero's journey. Uh. But that, you know, women also go through what was considered very traditionally the male hero's journey mm. in their own ways. Yeah. So as I've been studying some stuff recently and, you know, my wife and I have been trading some books back and forth that have really been focusing on what the woman's version of the hero's journey is. And also the fact that like men and women and, and obviously all genders are, are not as clearly defined as I think, you know, historical precedents have or patriarchal rigid, you know, versions of society have pushed for. So it's like, you know, there are different versions of the hero's journey that are, I think universal and archetypal. There are versions of the hero's journey that are more feminine that men have gone through Mm. more, you know, women have gone through the more masculine version. I think this idea of maybe kind of, I don't want to say like updating the traditional Campbell, you know, hero's journey, but like beginning to think about a more modern spin on it, a more, um, you know, pansexual spin on it. I think that's really interesting stuff. And I think we're going to see some very interesting art. We already are already have but like coming from the exploration of that and the fluidity around that story yeah yeah i think it's very interesting to think about how um you know there's on the one hand what joseph campbell's work seemed to be doing to me was for me at least was that he was uh on the one hand he was he was seeing something that was uh beneath the surface unexpressible and he was expressing it in a way that perhaps you know the way he um the formula used in the actual works and was a expression of the unexpressible, and that particular formula maybe needs to be updated or revised or you know, examine the expression of it. But I think the truths that he was pointing to, you know, haven't really changed. The truths that that he's, you know, he was directing us towards, perhaps have not changed for 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 human beings. But uh, the way in which it's expressed maybe uh, needs to be kind of rethought or kind of updated or toward changing circumstance, changing mentalities or changing or uh, 
perceptual shifts. I don't know. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's already happening. Yeah, it's already, yeah. There are more voices than ever. And, and you know, obviously in the last 20 years, the the advent of the internet has made yeah. it. So, like, they're, everybody's getting their stuff out there. The gatekeepers mm. are gone. And I think what we're starting to see and what's almost, like, manifesting more in reality now is the result of that. And, of course, there's the reaction to that, right? Yeah. And the the kind of push-pull, uh, balance, you know, Siths and Jedi, you know? Yeah. Like, like, okay, for every, for every, like, push forward, there's a reaction, which causes a counter-reaction. And, you know, I'm not going to get too into metaphysics because I yeah. don't know what I yeah, don't I know. know. But, like, I, I mean, you know, like, there are arguments that this is all just baked in and we're, we're you know that there's no free will right and this yeah. is we're just all like following stuff that's like baked deeply into our subconscious by not just our parents and our dna but by like eons of human development but mm -hmm. like putting that aside i think people are like doing very interesting stuff right now where where it's like they're putting their stuff out there no matter who they are and it's getting into the consciousness and it's changing it and it's showing us that there's a lot more going on and the veil I mean, if it hasn't already been yanked off, it's it's you know it's crumbling, burning, mm. and it's going to make for a very interesting world. And a lot of people are very scared of that. You know, yeah. one lens I think to look at it that I've been exploring recently in the past years is the Hegelian lens of um, you know we have an idea, then we have the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So we have an idea that unravels, and then it's uh, opposing force, or it's kind of the uh, negation that is contained within the original idea is then expressed. And then they, they kind of meet or confront each other. And then you have a synthesis that contains both ideas. That's something I've been reading recently. It's a very interesting it's idea interesting, because yeah. we think about history as being just like uh, one momentum in one direction. But actually, right. it's a, you know, as you're saying, you know, a balance and counterbalance that ultimately produces perhaps a third option. And not to think about in terms of like we're progressively getting worse or we're progressively getting better. But rather, it's just kind of a dance of a back and forth that creates some kind of you know, synthetic uh, result, a synthesis of result that some, un as you're saying, the unveiling or the, yeah. the, the always reaching into the unknown, as Star Trek put it, we boldly yeah. go into the unknown, you yeah. know, boldly go where no one has gone before. We're constantly striving into that undifferentiated mass of space, a mental space maybe, yeah. and our idea space, yeah. And I think that idea that it's not good or bad mm. is actually a very op optimistic idea. Yeah. Because like that to me says, okay, it's what it should be. Yeah. And it's like... A, my father has this saying that I actually love, where it's like he, he just like he loves to be like it's it's never all bad or all good, mm. and like, all right, whatever, you know. Mm. <laughs> My father, like, you know, middle class Jewish accountant, like you know, he's got his interesting opinions, yeah. but like, like you know, I love that one because yeah. it's 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 so it's so deep in a way because it's just like yeah, like there's a silver lining to so many bad things. I'm just talking even personally, yeah. You know? Or, like, you know, something that may seem bad now, but is actually about a wall being broken down to where, like, you know, two generations from now, they won't even know it was that bad. They'll look back mm. on it rever referential, reverentially. I mean, like, I, I just think it's very optimistic to think, this isn't bad, this isn't good. Yeah, I get pretty pissed at some of the, like, bad news you hear and some of the absurdities. But I also remind myself, like, they're just other humans doing that stuff. Yeah. I mean... Sure, some of those people probably fall under the categorization of like evil or yeah. sociopathic, but most of those people are just trying to do what makes sense to them, doing their best, 
doing what they've led to believe is the best thing to do. Mm. And I think also, like, even in the worst of times, the smallest gestures are creating tsunamis of positive change that may never we may never even know consciously were started from those things but that's why i believe in like little acts of awesome creativity you know Mm. like the little acts of freedom and unburdening of one's um kind of constrictions and saying i you know i'm gonna create great stuff i'm gonna make my stuff put it out there whatever it is i'm gonna play a piano recital tonight just for myself or just for this one person or whatever i mean those little acts are i think what add if you believe in the collective unconscious or some aspects of that, mm. sort of like add things in there that are fighting the good fight, if you will, against the the, the negative impulses. Yeah. But whatever, man, in the end, it's all just like the universe eating itself, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good, good. So we should start wrapping up. But I just want to yeah. say, um, you know, I think just to connect or, you know, connect to what we originally started with or to wrap, wrap this back in the circle, like the artist's journey is very helpful to understanding even these kinds of themes because, you know, once we shed that judgment, once we shed the critical mind, we said that, you know, in an artist's journey, we're, we're talking about how uh, the critical mind interferes with the creative process, uh, allowing it to unfold. Uh, similarly, it seems like, you know, in our in life interactions, kind of shedding those absolutes of, um, you know, they're helpful in some ways, but they also dis- they kind of impair our ability to see a situation clearly when we think about it in absolutes, you know, the the, the Star Wars that only Sith deals in absolutes yeah. is a great quote, I think, to understand that, um, you know, there's many subtleties and being able to appreciate that uh, the creation of something that new is not necessarily good or bad. It's just it's something that's emerging out of the circumstances and causes and creations that created it. It's inevitable that this the situation of what we're in now, the Whatever wherever we are now is, is created by the causing conditions that preceded it, and it's just the fact of history. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think uh, one of the things that I love is uh, it's like Bruce Lee. I think had a quote about like the the reed that is uh, too stiff in the river will like snap. Yeah. But like the reed that is flexible and will like bend with the flow, and the water will go around it. I mean, I think we're talking about resistance versus flexibility. I think we're talking about a certain degree of what I'll call love versus fear. And coming from a place of, like, love, not just of, like, come at, like, of oneself. Mm. So if you're going to sit down and create, don't judge. Don't beat yourself up. Don't worry about what everybody's going to think of you. They're all going to laugh at me. They're all going to hate it. They're going to love it, whatever. Just have love for yourself in the moment and the experience, you know. Have that experience without giving into the resistance against you know just doing it about the resistance against making a mistake you know Mm -hmm. make that weird mark put that weird flourish in half of the best parts of some of my favorite pieces that i've done are like weird little things that came to me at some random moment and so i think there's a there's a part of it that's just like go with the energy of you know, love, letting go, being flexible, you know, I think it's, um, excellent. Excellent. I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much. And, uh, so this is Radio Free Brooklyn, the Truth to Power show airing every Thursday at 9 a.m. If you'd like to support Radio Free Brooklyn, please go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org backslash donate. We're a nonprofit 501c3 uh, organization that your donations are fully deductible. Sign up for our newsletter, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org backslash newsletter. And download the app for Android and iOS for listening on the go.